this is the best way I, I can describe this. Um, for anybody who's been in the labor room with their wife, uh, <laughs> and Will, I know you haven't been there yet, but um, a lot of people listening have. And when, a, when your wife goes through labor, it starts off, the contractions are really spaced out far apart. Maybe they're 20 minutes or whatever it is. I can't remember. It's been a little bit. Um, then they start picking up and they're, they're happening twice as fast. Now you're at 10 minutes. Then they're at five minutes and they're getting more painful and more powerful, right? Then you're at two minutes. And uh, I think that's kind of what the global economy is going to really start manifesting kind of moving forward is it's, it's, it's going to start birthing a new system. <laughs> and when I, when the, what, what is the contraction, right? The contraction is the credit impairment because what we're doing is just, we're, we're feeding this, this whole system meds, right? To, to make it appear like what we have is stability when we have nothing of the sort. Um, the COVID shock, I think was, was like the water breaking in, in the uh, pregnancy. It was that moment where they had to step in with so much liquidity, uh, and so much monetary baseline, uh, units to replace all the impairment and all the credit that blew up in that supply and demand shock. And what it did is it just kind of has started this, this, uh, these deflationary and inflationary spikes that I think are going to start playing out in a way that I don't think people can really even fully comprehend. Yeah. So first of all, when I, I, on Preston's show, I said final days, I meant from a big macro perspective, like we're in the end times, but this could take years to decades and it probably will take decades. So the way I look at it is a couple of things. I think the U S the foundations in the U S dollar as being the world's reserve currency are clearly crumbling already. It's starting to dissipate and it's starting to decrease as, as the major player, other things are rising. The most, the, 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 the second most popular is the Chinese Yuan. I think Chinese uh, China in general is on the up and up and the U S is on the decline. And so at some point there's going to be a transition point where kind of they take over as the world's major power. That's, that's a little bit far off of what we're talking about. I do think China, Russia, and their allies have intentionally been, uh, they, they, they saw what is coming. They, they realized that when they buy crazy amounts of U.S. treasuries, that they're actually funding the U.S. war machine, to, and it's to their detriment in many ways. And they're funding and supporting the U.S. petrodollar system. So way back in 2014, they decided they're not going to continue buying U.S. treasuries at the same level they were. And so they've been decreasing that ever since. Who picked up the slack? The Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve has been printing money and monetizing the debt. So the U.S. is buying the debt of the U.S., and it's and that doesn't really work out, as everybody knows. You can't you can't buy your own debt and pay it off. At some point, uh, the victim is the U.S. dollar and the the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. So the people who hold the U.S. dollar, us, the U.S. citizens, and people around the world who own the U.S. dollar, we're getting rapidly devalued. Our purchasing power is is going down. I think if you look out about uh, 10 years from now, I see three major currencies. Uh, so we have tons of currencies, tons of smaller government fiat currencies right now. I think they're going to coalesce. Um, one by one, these smaller currencies are going to experience hyperinflation and people are going to kind of panic as, as anybody would and move that purchasing power into one of the big three. So the US dollar, the Chinese yuan and Bitcoin. And I think over time, 
10 years from now say, those are basically going to be the only three currencies that matter. I don't know what kind of proportion they're going to have. It's going to be interesting to watch too, because as Bitcoin Bitcoiners know, we don't really need these fiat currencies as a medium of exchange if we have the Lightning Network and, and there's going to be obviously more and more and better tools at that point um, to use Bitcoin. We really don't even need the fiat currencies. So I think that the government fiat currencies though are going to try really hard. I think China and its allies are going to try to wall off Bitcoin and have their own CBDCs, have their own ecosystem system where they're totally in uh, control, centralized control. I'm waiting to see what the U.S. does, but I really hope, obviously, we go down the Bitcoin route. I would like to see in the next several years us starting to put uh, include Bitcoin as a reserve asset to strengthen the U.S. dollar. I think that's one way that we could add tons of life uh, to the dying U.S. dollar as well. Uh, and then all of the other currencies, including even the, I think the euro and especially the Japanese yen, which has been kind of a major staple currency, a strong currency for decades and decades and decades. I think that's probably going to mostly go away and be irrelevant uh, 10 years from now. And, uh, and, and the reason why I have such a fast time frame on that is because Bitcoin is increasing exponentially. It's growing exponentially. And so it's just going to start, start absorbing all of these other currencies and all of that purchasing power uh, in the next 10 years. So I just think we have a very, very different world 10 years from now when it comes to currencies. Sure. And like, how does how does Bitcoin play into all this as well? Like, um, when we talk about like the end game for Bitcoin, when we think about like, you know, like the S curve of adoption, you know, with, with all that being said, like, what what's kind of the catalyst in your mind? Is it like the fixed income market just like completely breaking down as like Preston's always like banging the drum on like, what is that? Like, how, how, how does that kind of process play into the thesis that you just described? Like, what what's going to be the thing in your mind that really sends Bitcoin? Yeah, so it, I think it's all of those things sort of in conjunction. I think as the dollar, as we start seeing panic in people, and I think we're starting to just see that now, right? We're having high levels of inflation, not hyperinflation, but high levels of inflation. People are getting priced out of the goods that they want. Quality of life is going down. Income inequality is increasing more and more. That causes wars. That makes lots of unhappiness. That's when regime changes happen, including even the US. We're not going to be uh, immune to that kind of stuff. And so the same, so basically, I view treasuries also as just they're the U.S. dollar, they're interest-bearing dollars. Um, so they are also going to crack, and I think more and more people are realizing: look, U.S. treasuries are essentially return-free risk. Like, why would I hold treasuries if I know that with inflation being where it is, even if it comes down a lot? I'm still losing money. I'm still losing my real purchasing power if I hold treasuries. So one by one, these big pensions and endowments are going to start realizing that they're going to have these hard conversations and these big meetings. And they're going to decide like, look, we can't do 60, 40 stocks, bonds anymore. We need to do like 60, 30, 10 and put 10 in Bitcoin or five in Bitcoin. So I think lots of that fixed income money is going to come into Bitcoin, I think. Um, and then, as I was saying earlier, other countries who have much weaker currencies than the dollar and the yuan, they're going to start deciding to, hey, look, I'm going to put my money in Bitcoin, too, or at least put some of it in. Uh, they're going to try to transfer into better, sounder, stronger money. Um, and so that's how I see it playing out. I think it happens slowly at first, then all at once. And then we hit that vertical phase of adoption. And I think people are going to start panicking at that point, like, oh, shoot, I should have done this years ago and I didn't. And they're going to start transferring into Bitcoin very quickly. That's where people are going to be talking about hyper Bitcoinization in earnest. Um, again, I don't know when it happens, uh, but, you know, Bitcoin keeps surprising to the upside. I think it kind of lulls people into boredom and, and the volatility kind of throws people off. But then it just goes wham and it's going to jack up. And, you know, these these days of $40,000 per Bitcoin, 
we're not going to believe we just sat on our, on our butts and didn't just buy everything we could at that point. Cause I think there's going to be a day where it's 500,000, a million dollars per Bitcoin. And uh, we're going to look back fondly. Yeah, at these so days. I think uh, one of the things to highlight is that uh, the kind of conditions, market conditions in general, broadly uh, really changed in November and, and myself personally, didn't nail uh, the pivot. Like I'm not going to, not going to pretend I did, um, but really with kind of inflation hitting, uh, you know, accelerating past 5%, 6%, 7%. Now we're at, you know, 40 year highs, maybe 50 year highs, depending on uh, this Russia Ukraine situation and the commodity shortages around the world. Um, The Fed has gone from essentially, you know, having that kind of implicit Fed put uh, and protecting markets to, you know, being somewhat of a political liability from the inflation front. Uh, Powell said, you know, and I think it was late October, maybe early November, said, I was wrong. We were wrong about inflation being transitory. We got to fix this. Uh, and although they just raised rates, uh, 25 basis points, what really I think is the most telling thing is that credit markets are doing all the work for them. So if you look at short end of the curve, treasury yields uh, right now, the, the 10 years at 2.23%. Um, um, and so if you just even like the, the one year treasury at 1.3, uh, that was near, they were near rock bottom 0%. I'm not sure like exactly the low, but the short end of the curve has, has really um risen significantly. And so for, you know, anyone not too well versed in credit land, uh, bond yields trade inverse to the price of bonds. So obviously as a fixed income investor, if inflation's at 40 year highs, if your CPI is at 8% and you're holding a treasury, uh, that's, you know, giving you 2% yields. Well, in your, in real terms, you're getting killed minus 6%. So what do you do? You sell that off. And so thus, um, because of this inflationary regime, um, that, you know, the fed said they were caught off guard by uh, fixed income in, in general has gotten killed, not just treasuries, but also kind of corporate securities, junk bonds, investment grade across the board. You have also mortgage rates rising. So not only uh, are we seeing broad-based commodity uh, inflation, CPI inflation, particularly energy, right? If you look at what happened in the 08 crisis uh, and with, with energy prices going parabolic, that was another kind of big factor in the deterioration of, of economic conditions. Right, it, it impacts consumer uh, consumer balance sheets, corporate balance sheets, and and margins across the board, um, as well as it it basically uh, you know puts inflationary pressure, which further deteriorates liquidity because credit sells off. Uh, so where are we today? Uh, kind of in a in a pretty in a pretty ugly position where uh, you know we are more indebted as a, a total economy as we've ever been. Federal debt to GDP is over a hundred percent. Uh, corporate debt to GDP is at all-time highs following this decade-long, uh, you know, negative real yield binge, uh, and specifically after COVID, uh, with you know the the massive amount of, of fiscal and monetary stimulus in tandem, uh, the economy is as more over indebted than it's ever been, and we're facing a situation where the Fed's uh, you know kind of regime has changed. They're now saying we're going to tighten, but again, the Treasury market's doing that for them. So yields are rising across the board, which leads to higher financing costs uh, in a historically over-indebted economy. Not to, not to beat a, 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 you know, a dead horse, but um, I don't think many market participants have, have grasped this. So while increasingly the, the developments of Bitcoin have been really, really bullish, right? I've said multiple times, BTC as a numerator, I've never been more bullish. But how the credit system works and the economy more broadly, uh, when you see a recession, when you see a period of credit contraction, and kind of a liquidation of malinvestment, what's happening is that dollar is bidding. USD is strengthening. Um, also against other foreign currencies. So which means that foreign uh, foreign debtors have to sell their dollar-denominated assets to raise cash. 
Um, so that's kind of why I've been increasingly, I guess you want to call it bearish. I mean, I'm not long-term bearish by any means on Bitcoin, uh, but more so just kind of with elevated volatility and everything in the legacy markets. Uh, it doesn't look like an ugly picture. And I don't think we're in the up only by the dip regime that everyone came to know of uh, post-COVID. So, so now those geopolitical incentives are are kind of driven from um, a competition with other nations. Right. Uh, for for resources, for control of currencies, for kind of military. Um, and and they're they're and and there's almost a checkmate. If you're another nation and you don't have nuclear weapons, you're trying to develop them as fast as you can. Right. That puts the world in a very dangerous spot because we've never been at this point on a, on a transition between currencies um, and had weapons to destroy the earth. And, and any single thing, any single actor could precipitate something that could make this a very dangerous game. Um, so um, the other side of that, assuming we don't annihilate ourselves on, on, on the way through, is, is this change moves the shelling point from global competition to global cooperation. And it's a, and, and, and and that shelling point moving from global cooperation. If you just think, if you think about the mar, uh, the uh, marginal cost um, of production, and the marginal cost of production, which used to have us in it, labor is one of the biggest pieces. That labor rate, that labor is being removed with technology, and what that means is prices fall to the marginal the, the marginal cost of production, which is near zero, in a lot of cases over over time. That change of, uh, of, of prices falling at that rate means we get abundance if we allow the abundance. So Bitcoin, and it means even if you hate Bitcoin, right? If you looked at your calculator app on your phone, people think that it's on your phone uh, because of advertising and it's free because of advertising. It's free because it's a line of code and there's no entrepreneurs that want to write another calculator app to compete against that line of code because there's no money in it. And so what ends up happening is as more and more things become technology enabled, they keep driving down in price. And that abundance, the only way for that abundance to be broadly shared is, is an incentive, is an economic system that allows deflation, allows that to happen, to be broadly shared. Meaning you could hate Bitcoin. You could be one of the people over here yelling at it and it'll still benefit you. The way I think about Bitcoin's base layer is, as I was referencing, it is deathly important that we have a physical instrument that is digital, right? The whole reason we could do this, NCR could check out Wendy's by themselves without having to call banks and card networks is because there's no concept of debt or credit in the payment because you have money that can actually move digitally. An internet request is the settlement. There is no complex like negotiations of settlement in two to 15 days and what's your credit score. All Wendy's cares about is, hey, you, you're asking to pay me for a, a cheeseburger. Is there the money in the message? Is there Bitcoin in the message? Is this a cryptographic payment? Because if not, I don't care your credit score. I don't care where you live. I don't care your gender. Like either the money's in it or I can't give you the burger. And it's that simple. But the only way, Will, that we could have that is if the money is digital. 
And if the money is digital, it has to live outside of a central authority. It cannot live with the government. If, it ha- if it's this global thing that kind of lives in the clouds is what I tried to describe in my presentation. It's almost like within the heavens, this thing then the base layer is about enabling a digital money. That's it. It's not about like, well, the base layer is for the slow stuff and lightning's for the fast stuff. No, no, no. The base layer is not about moving. It's the Michael Saylor line. The base layer is not about moving a million dollars from here to Japan or moving $10 from me to Chipotle. The base layer is about being able to move a million dollars from here to the year 2140. The base layer is about building an asset that has sufficient distribution uh, fair distribution, uh, known monetary policy, fixed supply, sufficiently decentralized within a distributed network, extremely good security, and is resilient, censorship resi- resilience and resilient enough to where anyone can join the network. Anyone can be, like, so, so for people that are like, oh, this altcoin is going to make a better version of the Lightning Network. No, they're not because there is no other sound, secure, deathly trustworthy digital bear instrument that I can embed in the message to Chipotle. So the base layer is it's not about of it. It's the bedrock of it. And, and, and it's the, it's the only way that we could disrupt payments is if the digital bear instrument exists and it's going to exist forever. And we know that it's going to exist forever. So it's like, Oh no, that Bitcoin's too slow. No, you're thinking about it wrong. Bitcoin is going to exist forever and there's going to be demand for it forever because it's scarce, because the monetary policy is known, because it's global, because no one can control it. And that allows us to then build a payments network on top of it. So to think that the base layer is like the slower version and this one's the, no, no, no. The base layer allows the physical digital instrument to be alive forever. And so like Ethereum, all, all these other altcoins, like Dogecoin, like they, their base layers are not that <laughs> it's not like an infinite bedrock like what sailor says like the uh, cyberspace granite that you can build cities on top of and that's the way to think about the base layers not moving money from here to japan or here to chipotle but moving a million dollars from now to a hundred years from now sure and then the lightning network just makes the ability to move the physical digital instrument fast and at no cost And then once you have that, then I can send a message to Wendy's and embed the digital money into it. And it's open for anyone to build on top of. And so like the thesis behind Strike, like why are we auto settling into dollars is because if I wanted to enable these people to do that, like these people, Whole Foods, Wendy's, Starbucks, is it has to be compliant, it has to be regulated. The accounting practices, like you don't want to have to tell all your shareholders we're having like a difference in our balance sheet in our accounting, have to wait for regulatory bodies to figure out how to deal with settling bolts, 11 invoices with public companies. No, just give them the visa experience, just cheaper, better, faster. Give them the dollars instantly. There's no concept of interchange anywhere between cash up users to tour users can pay you. And then if you want to use the dollars and buy Bitcoin and add it to your corporate balance sheet, and like a lot of these people are Bitcoiners and they'll get around to it, but that's it. But that's like the whole I don't know, like it's not Fedwire and Visa. It's like enabling a digital bear instrument to exist so that payments are not debt promises, so that payments are not promises of future settlement, so that when I tell Chipotle I want to pay, I can embed the digital money inside of that message to them. And then whoever's on the receiving end of that, like NCR, 
and take the digital money, convert it to dollars and hand it to Chipotle. And they never have to call the banks and the card networks and have this sophisticated like future settlement and debt. And that's when you get like, like uh, someone in Nigeria can't use certain aspects of my financial system because Chase hasn't deemed them creditworthy enough. And maybe it's not about their actual creditworthiness. Maybe Chase just doesn't have the bandwidth to figure out everyone's creditworthiness in Nigeria. But now that like Chipotle doesn't give a fuck. Like when you want to pay me, if the Bitcoin's in there, I'll give you the burrito. If it's not, I don't care. Like it's not about this complex society of debt. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the tarot ecosystem is basically based around algorithmic stable coins. And those are very different from collateralized stable coins. And so for collateralized stable coins, like tether or a usdc uh they they hold a certain amount of assets uh that can be redeemed uh you know for those tokens basically you, you're at least at least supposedly backed one-to-one by assets whereas in an algorithmic stable coin they use software to try to make a token worth a dollar even though it's not actually backed up by any dollars right it's just kind of this artificial mechanism to try to maintain it at the value of a dollar and as one might expect those have been fraught with failure uh you're Kind of the mechanism is you're trying to be like an emerging market central bank, except without capital controls and without an economy to tax. It's kind of like this based on this first in, first out, uh, and a really shaky set of of kind of you know economic principles that can only last so long. Uh, and so, the way that that worked is you know if if, if their stablecoin was below the peg, it was it was below a dollar, you could you could basically arbitrage that uh, in order to get that back up using their other token, which is Luna. And so basically what it does is it pushes the volatility over to Luna. And as long as their stablecoin demand is increasing, it, 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 you know, it also increases the value of Luna over time generally. Uh, but the problem is that the demand for that was artificial. It was based on artificially high yields from various VC incentives and things like that. Basically, it wasn't a sustainable organic demand. It was kind of this you know, you can call it a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's, it's not really far off. Basically, it's, it's this kind of front-loaded, unsustainable type of, of thing to draw capital in. And, you know, those are vulnerable to attack. Uh, even without an attack, basically, UST uh, surplus yields were going to dry up. Uh, and so basically, we saw a, a run on the bank. Uh, you know, basically, people started to see that it was failing, and they all wanted out at the same time. And so Luna's equity was brought down to basically zero. You lose 99 percent plus of the value it goes to zero uh, and the peg breaks and so this was something like you know if you combine luna and and their stable coins it was it was nearly a 60 billion dollar uh you know protocol and that was wiped out in a matter of days uh and you know a, a challenge is that they you know they i think they saw the writing on the wall they were worried about the possibility of a death spiral so they started uh buying other assets ahead of time uh kind of like an emerging market holding treasuries or gold as a reserve currency that they can sell if they want to support their currency. And so they bought Bitcoin and then they had to sell that into the market uh, or, you know, specifically they were loading it to market makers to do, you know, various ways to try to defend the peg. Uh, and so they had to sell Bitcoin into a weak market. And now there's contagion because multiple funds had exposure to it. You know, this was kind of like a, a Lehman Brothers moment for the crypto space. And, you know, if we zoom out for a while, so, there are a number of people warning about this. Uh, I, I warned about it in, in the month ahead. And if we zoom out of why this happens over time, right? If you look at the at business cycles, right? So, and I've shared this with you before that the PMI cycle, so purchasing managers index, uh, you know, 
that's kind of a gauge of, of is economic growth accelerating or is it beginning to slow down? And it's not whether it's growing or shrinking, it's whether it's accelerating or decelerating. Although if the number gets low enough, it becomes outright shrinking. And what you generally see is that during accelerating periods, that's when liquidity is flowing. It's easy to get credit. Often the Federal Reserve is pumping money into the market. Uh, you have these, these you know, economic booms in the United States and many other parts of the world. And anyone with like a narrative can sell these tokens, these unregistered securities and off, offshore regulatory gray zones, right? They can, they can just pull in capital. And when you have those declining PMI environments, liquidity being withdrawn, you know, it's like the tide going out and anyone who's, you know, swimming naked gets exposed, or at least a lot of them. And we generally see these boom bust cycles. Uh, and so that, that's essentially what we're seeing now is that after a big giant rise up in PMIs and economic growth and liquidity, we're now getting a pullback in all those things. And so all these things that were kind of based on first in, first out, Ponzi-nomics, uh, you know, the vast majority of that is just getting cleared away. And unfortunately, that's a very large percentage of the, of the crypto space. <laughs> And then we have, when we get to hyper-Bitcoinization, the, the moment is now, right? We're at the nation state level. We have El Salvador. We have not, President Bukele has adopted legal tender. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is legal tender in El Salvador. But what came first? Like, did, did that move cause the U.S. to freeze reserves on February 26, 2022? Everything has changed from that moment. Just because people don't recognize it, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. What happened on February 26, 2022 is the U.S. seized reserves. The first time that has happened of a foreign nation. So the dollars, like they blew up the dollar. They decided to wipe it out as layer one money like it's no longer fungible it is no that's a you you need that to be money and now it's not like they froze reserves it's over so just because people haven't recognized that and they're still in a fiat mentality of like number go up you know which one am i gonna i need to like flip around with hex or or solana or avax or any of these uh, other shit coins in order to buy more bitcoin and Whatever. That's just a mentality that is uh, is fiat. What price is there to that? What unconfiscatable, permissionless wealth? Just like we were talking about masterpiece art. There's no price, literally, on the Mona Lisa because how do you even price it? That's the same thing. Like where we're going with hyper Bitcoinization, there's no price on that. How do you, in a world of a disintegrating fiat? in a world of a collapsing empire. And it's not you know, saying anything unique to America because all empires have done this before them. Like They all take everything down with them. And if, if, their, if their dollar, if, if they can't sustain the exorbitant privilege and the cantillionaire effect for their own uh, elite, then they're gonna take the whole thing down, clearly, because that's what they've just done. So you know, this is a new era, and I think it's hyper-Bitcoinization is here, and there's no sort of way to value your life, your sovereignty, and unconfiscatable wealth. Was, look, the, the people who are interested in, in this space, in the institutions, are, are fr I, they're, they're from the technology side. Like they look at this as technology. The, the technology analysts are the one who are the ones who are, are analyzing it. You know, the ones who understand cryptography and cryptocurrency uh, implications and how it all fits into the um, into the space. But once that kind of bleeds over and really moves into the financial world, and people start looking this looking at this as as it's digital money, I think that that's where it starts to differentiate itself. 
But the big break will be when people understand that it's a store of value. Now, how do we get there, right? So the question is, like, what is it going to take for Bitcoin to be, in particular, to be seen as a store of value? And, and I think it's going to take the asset to have enough market value that and liquidity that the volatility dampens. And that's going to take, it's going to be, it's going to happen in steps, right? So it's going to take a few very, very large institutional investors to start buying Bitcoin, right? And not just buying it, but then also announcing that they bought it, right? So you've got what? You've got five firms. We talked about this before. We've got five firms that control $30 trillion of, of investment assets in the world. So if you figure that there's you know uh, about $700 trillion in, in total investment assets, $730 trillion in investment assets, you know, um, that's a lot, 30 trillion out of, out of seven, 700, 720. So, but five of those firms, you got BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, and Morgan Stanley. And it, if any of those firms start announcing that they've, they've really taken this and considered a separate asset, and we know that we talked about Fidelity, we know that they're doing something. BlackRock, of course, is doing something. But when Vanguard comes out, when Morgan Stanley comes out and says, we are putting this in our, in our portfolios, that's going to be a big deal. So, and once they do that and they start buying it, then you're going to get a lot of other investment managers that feel like they've got to do this. So um, it, it takes time, but we'll come back to that in a second. But once they start buying this and they decide they want to have a 1% position in this, well, then Bitcoin, a 1% position in, in all assets, right? So if, they, if, if you look at all portfolios and, and across all asset classes between bonds, uh, investable bonds, corporate bonds, sovereign bonds, you know, um, you've got stocks, you've got real estate, um, you've got um, art and collectibles, and you've got gold and silver and, and uh, metals. So but if you put all of that in a basket in, in one big portfolio and you say that 1% of that has to be the separate asset class, well, then you're, you're already at a $350 million Bitcoin, $350,000 Bitcoin, sorry, don't want to get everybody too excited. So, but $350,000 Bitcoin, okay, now you're talking about a $7 trillion asset, right? You get that up to 2% and you're talking about over a $10 trillion, $14 trillion asset. Now you now you really do have the ability to put money in this and not see that same volatility. It's just not going to move the same way as it does here as such a small asset. I mean, we're we're half a, not even half a trillion dollars anymore. So um, but once you have that, then I think that it begin, it really it it takes off. And I don't know where that breaking point is. But it's somewhere, it's somewhere before that that uh, store value recognition that it just becomes completely uncorrelated. So maybe somewhere between one hundred and two hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin, where it just it rips up and it just complete completely uh, decorrelates to the rest of the market. The mathematics is. As simply as this, the USA right now at historic low interest rates is barely collecting enough U.S. tax revenues to cover its interest expense one times, 100%. Which means if interest rates rise, which they are likely to rise since the Fed is pushing 
short-term interest rates higher. The average funding rate for the USA is going to increase, and that will lead to higher interest expense, which will in turn lead to the organic growth of the U.S. debt outstanding just because of interest. And so James Lavish put out a real good uh, you know, synopsis of this. And I'm just going to borrow. I had the same numbers, but we'll borrow from this uh, from James's report. The USA collects uh, four and change trillion dollars annually in tax revenues. And mind you, that has been augmented lately because of nice capital gains increases in stocks and assets. Um, they collect four, four trillion and they have what's called a, you know, they have their primary. Uh, well, they have a fixed cost base that includes entitlements and military spending. And the combination of entitlements and military spending is in the area of $3.6 trillion, which leaves the balance of the tax revenues to pay for the interest expense. Now, the USA has $30 trillion of outstanding debt, Joe. And right now, their average interest expense is about $400 billion annually, okay? But that's at historic lows. The average interest rate that they were paying, if you do 30 trillion divided by 400 billion, you know, is around 1%. But that's likely to rise to 3%, right? Because the Fed funds rate is, uh, US 10 year rates are now, uh, 10 year tre uh, treasury yield rates are now 3%. And the shape of the yield curve and the funding, you know, the blended funding cost is going to cause interest expense to increase so that they will not even cover their interest obligations, expense obligations with the uh, residual tax revenues over entitlements and military spending. So it basically means that debt spiral is growing organically and can be quite severe if the Fed has to push rates significantly higher just because they are fighting inflation. It all leads to my opinion that quantitative easing, QE infinity, is in the, in the offing. There's no other way to solve the debt spiral. What, do you, what are your thoughts on, on the idea that some people say Bitcoin mining wastes energy. Wastes energy. Um, that's an interesting, it's an interesting term, period, right? Um, what, what I think is, is this. The less painful it is to waste energy, just as, you know, as a whole, um, the more indicative it is of a, of a very robust and abundant energy market in the world, right? In other words, if, if we just had, say, say, for example, all of a sudden tomorrow we had, you know, 10 times the energy production capacity that we do today, like what would the world look like? What would the world look like if I could, if I could consume, if you will, consume or, or convert um, a megawatt of, of power before I have a cup of coffee in the morning, right? Like, and economically do it. Well, that would mean that I have like, like one, I'm living in a world where we have insane abundancy of, of energy and power. Um, that's, that's what Bitcoin leads us toward. And it doesn't lead us there by incentivizing the waste of energy. It leads us there by penalizing waste, wasted energy, right? Before Bitcoin, for example, in the oil field, you, flaring gas was such commonplace. I mean, it's still pretty much commonplace today. That happens, you know, so frequently. But it was such commonplace and, and mentally, right, microeconomic behavior didn't associate any pain 
to flaring or wasting that gas. Producers looked at it as, hey, we want to produce this crude oil. Almost 99% you know, of the time that you produce crude oil, you get some associated natural gas. We burn that natural gas off because, you know, it's, it's a cost of doing business. It's a cost of producing the oil. They, they never, there was not a direct penalty there. Now with Bitcoin mining, any oil and gas producer out there who's just flaring energy dense, you know, CH4 methane, well, they could be earning, you know, with new gen ASICs, eight to 11, eight to $12 in MCF today, you know, eight to $12 per thousand cubic feet. So there's literally a stark dollar, you know, amount, a nominal amount uh, of pain associated with that activity. Bitcoin penalizes energy waste. Um, and through doing so, it will lower the time preference of energy producers, which will cause them to be more stewardly of the environment, um, cause them to be more efficient, better prepared, um, and, and ultimately be more economically efficient, right? They're, they will be, be able to better allocate their resources, which will bleed downstream to everybody, right? Again, it'll bleed down to every consumer. So Bitcoin doesn't waste energy. I mean, energy is never really wasted. It's never really consumed, right? It's only converted. Um, Bitcoin is going to be, or is the thing that is going to, to really revolutionize how we approach energy production. Um, because if you're wasting energy now, you're a dinosaur, right? You're an idiot. You're an, I mean, from a, from an investment point of view, you're, you're toast, right? You're never going to be able to compete. And so the bar has been raised, right? It, it increased the standard of energy production and power generation, the, there's no waste that Bitcoin caused. <laughs> Bitcoin, Bitcoin didn't cause any of this waste. Yeah, and I fully agree. I think energy is how you know civilization scales. That's how we have the great products and services and technologies that we do today. And if we're going to build a world where we have better technology and better goods, better services, we need more energy. So energy is not a bad thing, and and, and Bitcoin mining is somewhat like incentivizing the reduction of energy waste, but in a way it's also incentivizing the production of, of more energy to help you know everybody. Right. I mean, this is a harsh world, right? Like anybody who's tried to live in the environments, you know, anybody who's been, a, who's, who's experienced prolonged exposure, right. To, to the elements. Um, I, I personally, right. I've, I've done some expeditions in South America through Patagonia. You know, I've traveled glacier and things. And I mean, this, this, environment i mean people kind of have this this notion there's kind of this idea that like the earth without humanity on it like if you just like removed all the people and the earth just sitting there and, and if we didn't impact it at all like that it's like this utopian you know garden of eden kind of place and it's just not right like we have to bear this this you know planet that we live on we have to bear the context of it and Electricity specifically, but energy and electricity, energy and power are really what allow us to even live, you know, to be 70 years old, right? Um, to even have things like like hospitals um, in abundance, right? Where there's hundreds of hospitals per state in, in North America, right? Um, this, is, this is the fundamental, uh, I guess, the fundamental fuel to comfortable living and to quality of life is is energy and electricity and so it's easy when you're living in an abundance you know in the united states states specifically we 
I mean, we are well off, right? We are well endowed with, with natural resources and we have in, you know, incredible infrastructure here. For the majority of the world, reliable power, reliable energy is a matter of life and death, right? Here in the, in the United States, you know, we can, we can talk about, we can use intermittent and unreliable sources of energy and get away with it, right? Because we can, we can back up our wind and our solar with abundant natural gas and things. But in other places, reliable power, reliable energy might seriously be, you know, the difference between life and death. And so this is a matter of, of bringing humanity into the first world is bringing humanity into a, into a context, into a, a living situation where electricity and energy is abundant enough that it's economic for everyone to use at will. Right. And, and that's, that's the world, you know, I, I want, right. That's the future I want. Um, the world I want for, for my kids one day is, is one where, you know, you can go and do research and development and waste gigawatts of electricity just trying to, you know, make a process better or trying to invent something new. And if you fail, it's it's not like a massive detrimental cost. It's, you know, it's relatively, it's so economic that we can desalinate ocean water, right? Um, heck, I mean, what if we have so much abundant electricity, we can just, you know, deal, we can actually um, tweak the atmospheric composition of the planet to however we want it, right? And control weather, right? I think that comes in a world where we have a nuclear reactor on every corner kind of a thing, right? Um, and so I, I just, I envision a different future, I think, than, than and, and have different assumptions than those who would maybe criticize such a, such a thing. Yeah, and in a way, I, I feel like your vision of the future is, is more of like a, a bullish future. Like you're more of like a, a definite optimist rather than, maybe like a definite pessimist where you're like, Hey, everybody stop consuming as much energy as you can. Like, let's conserve this. Let's, let's just not destroy the planet. And you're like, Hey, let's consume a lot of energy. Let's produce a lot of energy and let's make the world a better place. What would you say to people that may think, Hey, Bitcoiners are too toxic. What's your argument to say like, Hey, like, yes, Bitcoiners are toxic, but it's helping get the 10 million Bitcoiners. Like people might think toxicity, would mean less than 10 million Bitcoiners. And you're, I would imagine you're, you would argue the opposite of that. I mean, I muted all four people that talk regularly about Bitcoiners being toxic. And then it's just like not a thing anymore. <laughs> like I just, it's, it's such a, it's such a just obvious ploy to get attention for those people to, you know, use some epithet that Vitalik came up with and lob it over against Bitcoiners. It's just like, it's so dumb. It was always such a dumb conversation. So I just ignore it. Yeah, it's fair. It is I mean, funny I'm a how Bitcoiner it's... and like, I just, you know, it's just stupid. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I remember like in 2018, it was, I feel like the, I don't know, I guess it started out originally with Vitalik calling Bitcoiners, Bitcoin maximalists as an insult. And then in like 2018 and 2017, Bitcoiners kind of like embraced it and they were like, yes, we're Bitcoin maximalists. And it was well, kind of Samson funny. made those dope hats. Yeah. Toxic Bitcoin maximalist hats with the, uh, with the hazmat logo. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Listen, like, like any epithet, like if a community that it's, that's being targeted wants to co-opt it and own it and just have fun with it, like it's totally within their right to do it. And, and I don't really give a shit if another Bitcoiner wants to call me a maximalist, but you know, but I'll stop the interview if I'm on a crypto podcast or a mainstream interview and I'll explain that's, you know, Maxi is a diminutive of an epithet and it means you don't know what's going on here. So let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's just, 
the history of the uh, term is just kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. In the in the Bitcoin world. Yep. I mean, the what you what I generally find is these guys have debate backgrounds and they're good at creating straw men and pretending that there is a type of person that doesn't actually exist or a position that nobody actually takes and and claiming that that's a position that's actually widely held. Um, and it's just like just complete mental masturbation on their parts. And maybe maybe it gets. I mean, I can name them like maybe it gets Udi some blockchain consulting revenue or something like that, or, you know, helps Eric gain some AUM for his crypto fund. But like, these are not people, you know, I, I was disappointed to see Eric follow suit this year. Udi was always like that. Eric actually, Eric Wall, uh, has contributed quite a lot, frankly, um, to Bitcoin thought. And I think this was just, uh, an unfortunate sidetrack, but you know, once he, once he's done with it and wants to come back. I would say, you know, has generally been a, a genuine participant until this year. Uh, but Udi, I just don't have any time for it all. Yeah. Yeah. Another, uh, I guess, thought leader, quote unquote, in the Bitcoin industry that I liked was Trace Merritt. I think he made like a lot of great videos back when he was, you know, actually a, a full Bitcoiner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. He, he did his exit scam for whatever reason. I don't know. It's a shame. Yeah. You know, I, I like I heard, he like, talked about things. Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah. I heard Caitlin Long, Long was on a podcast like maybe a week or so, week or so ago. And I, I, she mentioned that she had talked to Trace recently about Bitcoin and stuff. And I thought that was interesting because he definitely has gone dark. So I wonder what he's up to. Trace, if you're out there, come on the podcast. I'll talk to you. <laughs> come on the pod. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it Listen, man, there, there are so many voices out there now that you don't need to listen to people whose views are adulterated by bullshit, right? Like I don't need to point people toward Andreas anymore because there's plenty of people out there that aren't confused and who actually do understand money and economics to a degree much greater than he does even though he's a fucking genius and I love his videos and it was instrumental to like my understanding of Bitcoin. And I remember certain videos of his, I used to listen to the YouTube videos more than watch them. And I like, I remember what street I was on and where I was walking or whether I was with one of my daughters and like when that point was made by Andreas and I sent my parents to go see him live and like all this stuff. But it's like, at the end of the day, if you're also saying there's going to be 10,000 of these tokens and some girl in some village can like, create a token that's going to get used as money in her region of a continent. It's like, dude, you don't understand this shit. Like there's, you have massive gaps in your understanding here. And, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, it, the same goes for quite a few people who were at one point the best we had, but now we have better. Like we, Roger Ver used to be one of the best advocates for Bitcoin, but he didn't really understand it, you know, and Andreas doesn't fully understand it. And I'm not saying that I do, but I can point to, some things that they get dramatically wrong about Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Bitcoin does have this habit or the Bitcoin community does have this habit of killing their, their thought leaders and transitioning to new ones that, you know, some argue are better, some argue are worse, but it is interesting how that continues to happen. I think, again, yeah. that's kind of a feature of the community out, you know, there's not really a clear leader. I think that's kind of the hundred percent. And yeah, and some of the best people that really do know it through and through, they get tired. So they don't want to be in the Twitter fights. And so then you're sending your B team, you know, and, you know, everyone on the crypto side 
is on the B team by definition, but they're going up against the B team on the Bitcoin side because the, you know, the other guys are kind of retired. They're tired of it, you know, yeah. so you're not getting Jimmy and Jameson on every single fucking thread. <laughs> yeah. If point. you did, if you did, you just get stomped out like Michael Jordan <laughs> in eighth grade game. Like you just get crushed every single time. But, uh, you know, people like to argue with somebody today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes back to the idea that a lot of the setbacks or like critiques of Bitcoin were answered on like the Bitcoin talk forum back in like 2011. So long ago. <laughs> so long ago. Yeah. You can just go back and, you know, you read like, you know, VJ from 2018 or Beauty on from like 2011 or yeah. whenever his, you know, some of his first stuff, like there's so many good things, things that Hal and Satoshi said, just like answer the questions on first principles and explain how this shit is going to play out. And it has exactly done that in so many ways. Yeah, exactly. And the, and those guys that I guess understood it or somewhat understood it back then have, you know, thousands of BTC. So they're not on Bitcoin Twitter arguing with each other, <laughs> arguing Listen, with it. We're going to in 2026, we're going to be talking about people that have tens of BTCs as being filthy rich and like, you know, another four to eight years after that, it's going to be like anyone with a Bitcoin, you know, it's just going to be, yeah, it's just going to be more and more scarce as compared to the number of humans that want some. Yeah. Exponential scarcity is a wild invention and we're watching it play out in real time. So it's, so I think there's a mismatch between perceptions and reality about where some of the technology is in terms of, of different energy sources, right? So you know, something, you know, like three quarters of, of global energy comes from hydrocarbons. Uh, and then the rest, you know, uh, hydro and nuclear are big chunks and only something like 5% is wind and solar. Uh, but as wind and solar have kind of been pushed uh, to be, be larger and larger parts of the grid, and there are there are certainly applications where they're useful. There's very there's very hot and dry regions of the world. Uh, you know, rooftop solar can, can give you kind of more autonomy from the local grid if you have, say, rooftop solar and a battery backup, for example. So, but as they've kind of um, put policies ahead of technology, uh, and you kind of like you know obfuscate the costs, overstate the strengths, and and, and get that into the grid, it, it it's you know kind of caused some issues. There's also a challenge where you know, there's not a lot of investment in the grid itself, right? So for example, California keeps having their electrical grid, you know, parts of electrical grid face rolling brownouts. Uh, and and you can imagine if, if you were to say 10X, the number of electrical vehicles that are drawing power from that grid instead of through the gasoline distribution system we have, right? That's all now, if that starts going over the grid, that's more stress on the grid. You need more copper, you need more redundancy, you need more cables, bringing that around. Uh, and so I think the short term way out of this is frankly, just there needs to be more supply of hydrocarbons, natural gas, uh, uh, oil and coal, uh, because that, that's what the world's currently short of, uh, especially in certain locations. Longer term, you know, I'd like to see a nuclear renaissance, uh, you know, combination of smaller reactors, and a, a better regulatory environment could really make nuclear come back. I mean, Decades ago, it was actually pretty cheap and quick to build a nuclear plant, um, as as there have been a handful of accidents, um, which, you know, there's actually, even if you add up all those accidents, the number of, even if you take the worst case scenario of not just immediate deaths, which was very, very few, but if you kind of uh, take the high end estimates for environmental damage and, and what that could have caused, uh, you know, kind of in the region, you know, it's it's like it killed fewer people than coal kills, like, you know, every year, for example, uh, through particulates in the air. But nuclear got that kind of um, 
increasing regulatory burden. And that now makes it almost impossible in many places of the world to build a new nuclear facility. Um, and of course, you want like safe operations. So for example, part of why Chernobyl was so bad is they didn't even have like the, the shield uh, that now is standard practice among the nuclear facilities. And, and so there obviously there's really bad ways to build a nuclear facility, but you know, the modern ways and, and, and back then even the, the responsible ways can build safe nuclear. Uh, and so I'd like to see that combination of, of you know, they, they've developed small modular reactors. Uh, that's That's been a bit like a push lately. And if there were kind of easing regulatory environment, I think that nuclear can can at least solve a lot of the baseload grid power. And then longer term, you know, there's there's interesting things like, you know, ocean thermal energy uh, that I think is underexplored. You know, there, there are other ways to get baseload power. But the, the general thing you need is that you need to have nature do as much of the storage and concentration as possible. Because the more that you have to replicate with machines, you know, the less efficient and energy dense that's going to be. Um, and so I think that's the big theme that a lot of people are, are missing in the energy space. And I think this is the beauty of Bitcoin and, and what has drawn me to it and what continues to, to get me excited to cover it is that Bitcoin is essentially a check on perpetual central bank policy error. For a lot of this, this, this discussion, we've been speaking about how the Fed is getting it wrong and they have gotten it wrong, right? They're not witnessing the global dollar shortage abroad. They seem to not understand that inflation is a rate of change. And if they pause at the level that they're at now, it would go down over time. They seem to engage in these extreme highs for interest rates, followed by extreme lows for too long, and then extreme highs very quickly. And this is what they've been doing time and time again for the last 50 some odd years. Um, as a function of this, if you understand that every single deflationary bust Every single massive growth slowdown is met with copious amounts of monetary stimulus, right? They create new facilities for pumping the economy with liquidity all the time. In 2008, you know, quantitative easing, it, it was a thing in Japan before, you know, before 2008, but in the United States, this new facility was invented where, uh, you know, bank reserves are injected into banks out of thin air by the, from the Federal Reserve uh, in exchange for a treasury, treasury, right? So essentially printing money. This liquidity facility was invented. It was invented out of thin air. And so if you understand that every single time there is an asset price bust, there's a growth bust, it is met with more credit expansion and new and unique facilities for liquidity and credit expansion, then you understand that, okay, if this is going to continue occurring, and I have no reason to believe that it won't, because you know the Fed is not just going to you know change their ways overnight. If I feel that this will continue occurring, right? This this extreme credit expansion as a result of aggressive over tightening of monetary policy, which I do, then I understand that the liquidity tide is going to flow once again, and it's going to flow harder and faster than it did the previous cycle, as it always has. And so, with that in mind, I want to park my money somewhere. That's a check on that. I want to park my money in the most porous sponge for global liquidity, right? What is the most porous sponge for global liquidity? Well, there are a couple of things. Well, I wanna make sure that what I'm investing in, what I'm purchasing as a check on perpetual liquidity expansion, um, it's infinitely divisible. I wanna make sure that when I get in, it's not as if new participants are gonna be bidding up uh, you know, an increasingly finite supply. I wanna make sure that it's divisible, say into the, the hundreds of millions, right? I also wanna make sure that it's infinitely scarce, right? What's the utility of holding something 
you know, if, if we know that liquidity is going to expand in perpetuity, I want to hold something that is uh, infinitely scarce, uh, you know, absolutely scarce into perpetuity, right? I don't want that to change. And so when I take off all those boxes, when I understand that, um, you know, liquidity, uh, global liquidity, it flows harder and faster every single cycle um, as a response from the Fed because they don't know any better. They're not going to change their ways. Then uh, I pair that with the existence of Bitcoin, right? Then I understand that Bitcoin is essentially a check on that pro-cyclical over-easing, uh, over-tightening, fall by over-easing, fall by over-tightening, this boom and bust cycle monetary policy that continues injecting the economy with you know increasing amounts of liquidity every single time. And so Bitcoin offers up the apex solution for that. So asset prices in general, right? They all appreciate when global liquidity appreciates, but what is the most porous sponge out there? And Bitcoin, Bitcoin's the most porous sponge out there. I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts on the whole SBF debacle? Is he just gonna, you know, be in the Bahamas forever or do you think he might get arrested at some point? And also like, <laughs> why do you think the media isn't necessarily painting him as this, you know, obvious v villain? Yeah, it's, I'm really disappointed by everything that's happened with SBF. And it's, you know, it's sad that Bitcoin looks bad in this whole thing, especially for people who don't understand the space. Um, but it's neutral. It did nothing wrong. It was just cross-collateralized. And, and people like SBF create these paper, um, paper versions of Bitcoin. And, and that's so unethical. Um, so my reaction is I, I hope that the DOJ, I hope that the SEC, I hope that law enforcement agencies go after him and bring him in and ch formally charge him because in my opinion, what he did was fraudulent. It was a Ponzi scheme. It was to enrich himself. Um, I mean, the fact that he was basically loaning money using an air, air token as collateral, loaning money to himself, that people affiliated with him, including his parents, may have purchased expensive properties. Um, this is wrong. This is not what this revolution of Bitcoin and removing the power of money from the state. This is not what this is about. It's not about enriching a small group of individuals who think that they, you know, you know, have the right decisions on how the future should be created. Um, it's it's wrong. And he duped so many smart people, which is amazing to me. You know, these these massive institutions from the VCs to these celebrities who had a ton of money. You would think that they would all do their due diligence to make sure that they're not just like putting their money into a group of of, you know, Silicon Valley, former Ivy League nerds who are going to basically wash trade it with themselves to pump up the value and take out loans and to become their own bank and take out credit lines and then trade it and, and pay off politicians and then lose all the money. I mean, this is ridiculous. And they did it all offshore for a reason, because everything that they did is inherently illegal. Um, and so I hope that it's a huge lesson. I hope that in the end, I think it actually strengthens Bitcoin and, and what Bitcoin's all about and Bitcoin's value proposition. But in the meantime, I just, I just hope that these policymakers actually hold them accountable and take the time to learn about why this happened and how. Um, the fact that he's sort of, as of right now, getting a little, little bit of a pass, like Rep, Representative uh, Maxine Waters, I think, tweeted at him something that was equivalent to, you know, oh, you know, please talk to us, Sam, come, come, come. Thank you for explaining the things that have been going wrong. It's like, no, hold this guy accountable. This is the Bernie Madoff of crypto right now. And everybody's just sort of 
you know, approaching him on eggshells. And I don't understand that. Um, so I, I think that charges will come down. I saw that Caroline Ellison was spotted in New York. I'm sure she's working with an attorney who wants to get her some sort of a plea deal. The only way that that'll happen is if she divulges a ton of information. So I think it's going to be a couple of people pitted against each other, Caroline versus SBF. And we're going to learn more in the coming days. And I don't buy any of the crap he's been selling to the media. Like he's, he knew what he was doing. He just thought he would get away with it to be able to, you know, complete his mission and plan of whatever he wants to do with all that money. But, um, but it was wrong. He was using customer funds and he, he, he should be in jail, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty insane how it got so big and how so many like big names, whether it's like Tom Brady or Sequoia, mm-hmm. uh, were just full fledged behind FTX and SPF. It's, it's pretty yeah. wild. The same people that are trading the air tokens don't really understand they either don't understand securities law or they don't care, right? Like if you understood securities law, like you couldn't buy a penny, right? I mean, like I, I, I would never buy a penny of a crypto token because they're unregistered securities, which means they're being manipulated in an unethical fashion by a central party. Whether or not the central party knows they're manipulating it or they don't understand. Some people generally don't understand the ethics. It doesn't occur to them that if you change the monetary policy of the token, you have you have manipulated the value of the token, thereby defrauding investors in the token, right? When, when you turn off, you know, yields to, to miners in the ETH ecosystem and you shift it to stakers, you have defrauded everyone that bought ETH based on ETH mining, and you have you have actually robbed the miners of their property, right? You have devalued their property. So normally when you devalue the property of your securities holders, right, this class action lawsuit, right, they would sue you because you stole from them. You know, just like, you know, in any public company, if you just got up and you said, we've just decided to unilaterally you know, devalue your security. We've issued another class of security and given it to our friends and we didn't tell you. You're going to get sued, right? So so I think um, the people in the business, they didn't really understand that. Either they just don't, they just don't understand, they're not sophisticated enough, or they don't care. And, uh, and they, if you don't care, it's because you just were greedy, right? You're, you're willing to accept the fact that someone is manipulating a central token against the interest of outsiders in an unfair fashion you don't care and you're willing to you're willing to accept the fact that they will continue to do it because you're hoping you're a mercenary you're hoping to get in make a quick buck and get out right there there's nothing right about you know you you issue a token like Solana Right. And then you lock it up and then someone manipulates the price up by a factor of 10 and then they sell it. Right. And then you had, you know, you had a preference and it was never taken public. There's nothing right about that. Right. You can't you can't justify it because what you did was you engaged in in insider dealing, self-dealing securities manipulation in order to take advantage of somebody. Right. If you weren't taking advantage of somebody, you would have taken the company public. Right, the, the way that you sell securities to the general public is you go public, you file a registration statement with the SEC, 
you announce the, the governance, the risk factors, the initial distribution, all the conflicts of interest, all the related party transactions. You get a sign-off from the regulators. Then after you've fully disclosed enough information, you get your books audited by a trustworthy auditor. You know, you get a legal opinion. You know, after you've got your books and records in place and you made all your full disclosures, then you're then you're allowed to trade on a public exchange. That's the right way to do it. It's not just the it's not just the compliant way to do it, it's just the ethical way to do it. Right? I mean people that the blind spot is if you hate the regulators, it, it doesn't occur to you that the, the the rules are meant to encourage ethical behavior. If the regulars didn't exist, it wouldn't change the requirement. You should not lie, cheat, or steal, right? You should be honest and forthcoming with people when you induce them into a financial relationship with you. Mm-hmm.